find in your Bibles. We'll, we'll remain seated today with a longer passage, but if you'll turn back to Luke 24, uh, verse 13. We'll be looking at verses 13 through 35 this morning. And then, Lord willing, we will look at the rest of Luke next week. So Luke 24, starting in verse 13. Would you hear God's word then as it's read to you? That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who is a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people, And how our chief priests and the rulers delivered him up to condemn him to death and crucify him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, this is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back, saying that they had even seen a vision of angels and said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did our hearts not burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is God's word for us this morning. Well, we, we come to a famous passage, you know, the, the sort of the one you preach after Easter Sunday passage, so you've potentially heard it before, the road to Emmaus. It's actually one of the longest passages in Luke, sort of single passages. Luke wants us to see something, but think of this question first. If, if you were Jesus and it's Easter Sunday 
And certainly there's already miraculous things that have happened. The women have come to the tomb. The tomb is empty. They've seen angels. We know from John's gospel that Mary at least has seen Jesus. But here are two disciples walking down the road, confused about what has happened. What would be top of your list? What am I going to do to help these disciples see what's gone on? I mean, you could think of maybe some fun ideas, <laughs> appear to them on the road or speak, you know, with, with a heavenly voice or send those angels back, right? Uh, they, they, they don't believe the women. Let's send the same angels to them while they're on the road. <laughs> What's striking is that this whole passage is, is, is long. It's, it's, it's like the road, the seven-mile road that the men are on. It, it causes us to slow down to look around and say, what's happening here? Jesus doesn't reveal himself right away. And the way he does reveal himself is through very ordinary things like walking and talking and opening the Old Testament and eating a meal together. Now, Jesus other, other times will certainly do miraculous things, but it's striking that these disciples along the road Jesus meets them and through very ordinary means rekindles their faith. I hear men that are dejected, uh, thinking all is lost, and by the end of the passage, they've seen Jesus. And their faith is stirred up, stoked, rekindled by Christ. And so the point of the message this morning is, is he is Christ, the rekindler of faith. And we're going to see how he does it. Certainly, he does it miraculously, and amen, but here we see him do it in, in, in such ordinary means, and I, and I think this, if you'll hear, I think it's an encouragement to us uh, that perhaps my faith could be rekindled in the same way. So let's look at the passage. We'll look at three ways that Christ rekindles faith. Number one, he rekindles faith along the road. Along the road. You'll remember the context here, of course. Good Friday, the events of Good Friday are, are now past. And we've spent much time meditating on those passages. Uh, Christ has truly died. Uh, he has truly been buried. Luke goes through pains to say that the women saw where he was buried. They saw the means by which he was buried. Uh, we read uh, just a moment ago that the women came to the tomb early in the morning bringing spices, probably not thinking logically that there's a stone over the tomb and there's Roman soldiers in front of the tomb and sort of what do they think is going to happen, but they have this sense that they want to bring these spices, but what do they find but uh, guards that have been uh, knocked out, as it were, by amazement, angels speaking to them, and an empty tomb. And Peter comes running, sees the tomb. People are wondering, what? What is happening? And there's some sense that there's going to be a gathering in Jerusalem to, to hear from Jesus. And our passage says that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus. And you start to see what I was talking about, that you have the resurrection account, the empty tomb, the angels. So you're thinking the next line, okay, Luke, only Luke gives us this passage. So you're thinking, okay, Luke, if you added something, not added, but to your gospel and a, a, a historical account, oh man, how are you going to top what's just happened? And, and he's like, oh yeah, yeah, sit down. Here's two disciples. I'm only going to name one of them. Oh, and we don't know who he is. Cleopas. He's nowhere else in scripture. And they're heading to Emmaus. 
and we've lost sight of where Emmaus is particularly. It didn't sort of stay on as an important village or city, and they're walking and talking on the road. (laughs) That's the topper, the account, and yet this is exactly what we find. They're heading to this uh, place called Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem, two non-apostle disciples walking, talking. The word can mean discussing, even debating. Right, have, you, have you ever had a good long walk with someone, maybe even a fellow believer, and, and on the walk you, you just have these wonderful conversations and debates, or, or you're wrestling through something, and it's just along the road. There's something about walking along the road, talking with one another, uh, that brings these things uh, to bear. But here they are. They're on their way. They're on the road, talking with one another about all that's happened. And it says, while, verse 15, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. This is the resurrected Christ. This is, he has his glories, glorified body, but he comes sort of once more secretly. And it says, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And perhaps this is the one sort of miraculous aspect of the story. People debate whether it just means they couldn't tell. Uh, I think it means uh, we have here what's called a divine passive uh, that it'll use. They were kept from seeing. The implication is uh, God kept them from seeing, right? Uh, And later it says their eyes were opened. It doesn't say they opened their eyes. It says their eyes were opened. So here their eyes are shut by someone else, and then they're to be opened again. I think Jesus does this on purpose. I think physically they would have recognized him. They would have said, you know, that's Jesus. So he conceals himself, and he starts to talk with them. What's this conversation that you're having? And don't you love how Jesus is sort of drawing them out as if he doesn't know what they're talking about, right? And it says they stood still, looking sad. You could imagine their shoulders just drooping as he asks about this. And Cleopas is bold enough to say, are, are you the only one who doesn't know? Everyone's talking about this, right? Even those who didn't like Jesus. And again, Jesus draws them out, verse 19. What things? Tell me, what things are you talking about? And then Cleopas then launches into a, a very long, good summary of, of all the things that have happened. Uh, in one sense, they have a clear sense of the historical, what, what's happened here But what they can't answer is, why did it happen? Nor can they finish the story, even though Jesus had told them this many times. Uh, They speak of, of course, Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet, mighty in deed and word. Uh, They talk about how the chief priests and rulers condemned him, crucified him. We've seen that over the last few weeks. And then you see their heart in verse 21. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have passed. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We thought he was going to set us free from the Romans, or perhaps to give benefit of the doubt, even a more spiritual sense, but instead he died on the cross, and he was buried, and we're confused now about this empty tomb, but it's the third day. I mean, days have passed. And nothing's coming of it. And so we see that they're, they're walking and discussing. It's, it's, a, it's a dejected, sorrowful. And, and you know what this feels like if you've lost a loved one. 
especially recent to the loss, but even years later, it can, it can come in waves, tidal waves. This person who is with you and is now gone, and, and you say, now what? One author puts it this way, no one ever told me that grief felt so much like fear. And here are the disciples, fearful, grieving, wondering, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And they continue that the women at the tomb, they, they say, it's even more amazing than that. The women went to the tomb, and they say it was empty. They say there was angels. But, it, and they kind of, there's an ironic line here at the end of verse 24. It says, but him they did not see. Uh, you know, they went to the tomb, found it just as the woman had said, but, but him, but Jesus, they did not see. And that's exactly these two men, they, but Jesus, they did not see. He's right in front of them. And so Jesus is about to, as we'll see in the next point, uh, lovingly rebuke them, open the word to them, but, but see uh, even here. I see even here that Christ is the rekindler of faith. He's, he's drawing out their faith. He's, in, he's inviting it. He's causing them to reflect on the events that have happened, that he told them about again and again. Just in Luke, you can go back. More than four, five, six times, Jesus will say, the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem, the Son of Man must die, and on the third day, he will rise again. He's causing them to reflect back on these things, to think more clearly about, wait, what did the women say again? Wait, angels? (laughs) He's inviting faith on their part, and of course, we would say empowering it as well. And it's along the road. And isn't this true of the Christian life? The Christian life is a pilgrim life. As, of course, the the classic Pilgrim's Progress tries to bring out for us, that the Christian life, there are ups and downs, and there's veering off the path, and it's only through His grace that we remain on the path all the way to the end. But what good news, right? That It's along the path. Jesus comes walking along the path through His Word, through the Spirit, to rekindle faith in you. And how does he do it? What is is this very ordinary way? It's here, it's through walking and talking. I would say in our own experience, just to make it tangible, he does this through fellowship, through walks, through chats by the fireside. How does Christ usually do this, of course, through his word, through the spirit, and then through God's people as we reflect on these things together. I can remember critical nights in my own life where um, you know, a friend and I would be walking out under the stars. We'd walk through the old schoolyard. We'd go lay on the bleachers, looking up at the stars, debating theology, pondering next steps in life, discussing what faithfulness looks like to Christ. And God uses these moments in our life. And, and of course, that assumes that you have fellow believers that you share walks with and talks with and cups of tea with and fireside chats with, where sometimes the Bible's open and you're praying together and you're, and you're debating and thinking and talking. And, and what does it mean to live for Christ? People of God, you need mentors who are ahead of you on the path saying, imitate me as I imitate Christ. You need people walking alongside you, 
uh, to spur you on to love and good deeds, to say, keep going, keep going. You need those uh, behind you, not beneath you, but behind you that you can mentor, that you could pray over, that you could encourage. The Proverbs are full of this, but Proverbs 18.24, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And so, child of God, are you vitally connected um, to the point that you could have these kinds of conversations over his word? Christ uses the most ordinary means to rekindle faith within us. How the world has been changed and the kingdom furthered by one more log on the fire one more lap around the neighborhood, or one more pot of hot water set to steam on the stovetop. I encourage you to connect with one another. Christ rekindles faith, even through these ordinary conversations and relationships. Number two, he rekindles faith through the word. And of course, this is most obvious in this passage and most fundamental to how he rekindles faith. But you'll see in verse 25, Right? They've given their testimony, sort of shared their heart, shared their confusion. What's going on here? And Jesus says to them in verse 25, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, uh, of course, we're empathizing with the two, and so maybe at first we think, whoa, like, is that sort of harsh <laughs> that he would rebuke them in such a way? But uh, remember, this is a loving rebuke. I think of Paul, you know, oh, foolish Galatians. Was it not before you that Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified? That certainly calls out those who are uh, not living by faith to begin living by faith, but Hebrews 6, 9 captures the heart for the believers. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, We feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Remember that Jesus is inviting their faith. He's rekindling it. And sometimes that means a harsh, loving word. Because he says, well, not only, we're going to look at the Old Testament, but but he looks back to say, I have have told you this many times. That word we've looked at before, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things? Uh, That's... Uh, one word in Greek, and it, we call it the divine must. It's not that Christ came and then worked out a plan and sort of made it work. But this was plan A from before time. Luke 9.22, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, be killed, and on the third day be raised. He said that to these disciples. Or chapter 13.33, nevertheless, I must Go on my way today and tomorrow and the following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Or chapter 17, 25, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. He's calling them foolish because he's told them again and again, this must happen. The story's not over. In their own words, this is the third day when he said he would rise again. But it's also a divine must in the sense that he, he takes them. And we're going to look, Lord willing, next week as this theme continues. Um, I'm tempted to dive into it now, but we'll wait till next week. He unfolds the whole Old Testament for them and shows them that every passage, every book, all of it points to him. All of it leads to him saying the Son of Man must suffer. The Son of Man must rise again on the third day. And we'll look next week at that. 
But for now, we see that they were made to see in his opening up of the word to them. Uh, they say this later, right? It, it, it says, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road and while he opened to us the scriptures? And of course, this is a, the primary means of grace that we have today. But first, they were made to see. Friend, have you been made to see? If you've come today and you're not sure if Jesus is your Savior, you've, you may have sat through more Luke sermons than you would have ever planned on sitting through. And in each one, I pray, the gospel has been put before you. This Jesus has been put before you as publicly portrayed, as crucified, and now risen again. These disciples were made to see. Have you been made to see? Has the Spirit opened your eyes in the opening of the Word to receive Him as your Savior, as your Lord? I pray that He would do that, and I pray that you would receive Him then and with the gift of faith that He gives. But we see here for believers then that Christ is the rekindler of faith, and He, he does this most readily through His Word. Even Jesus said in the, in the wilderness, man does not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And so our shorter catechism helps us in, in saying, the Spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the word, an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners, of building them up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. And so that means your private devotions are, are effective. The Spirit works as you open the Word and seek to understand it, especially then when you read with others. And then especially then as you sit under the preached Word, where we say, thus saith the Lord, Christ longs to rekindle your faith. I, I pray that the Word would, would saturate your life. As, as men and women of old have said, that if, if someone would, uh, would, would cut you, you would bleed Bible that it's so stored up in your heart. So Christ rekindles faith through the word. Number three, and finally, Christ rekindles faith around the table. Around the table. Now, very quickly, we have some interesting notes here. They're, they're, he, he gives them this loving rebuke and opens the scriptures to them. Or they start to draw near to this village, this seven-mile-away village, and it says that Jesus acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, uh, for evening is on. Now, uh, uh, critical scholars will say, Look, Jesus was deceiving them. Right? He, he's acting as if he's going further. He's lying to them. But uh, we don't have time to dive into the ins and outs of this. But I think on a plain reading, you could see that Jesus is acting very culturally appropriate. It, it's, it's good hospitality on the receiving end to, you know, you've done that. Oh, no, it's okay. I'm, I'm going to keep going. And it, there's an understanding, a mutual understanding that you're sort of asking the person um, if they're willing to invite you in, right? But sort of deferring to them so as not to overstay your welcome, uh, and Jesus is doing this, again, still, he's not deceiving them. He's drawing out their invitation, which they give. Uh, Jesus is to stay with them. And they sit down at table. They, they, he, it says he took bread, he blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. <laughs> 
So maybe something else miraculous happens here. People debate, you know, did he just leave? But um, I think he just vanished here. <laughs> so he's revealed and he disappears. Uh, so remember at the beginning we said, what would you do if it was up to you? Maybe you would have thought of this one. But um, So he vanishes from their sight. Uh, and we'll see a minute as they, they're, they're amazed. They're, they say our hearts burn within us. They go to meet the other disciples. And next week we'll see that Jesus then comes uh, in the flesh, really, to reveal himself to them. Uh, but here we have this final means that Jesus uses to rekindle their faith. Uh, because it says at the very end in verse 35... Uh, how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. That was the moment when Jesus breaks the bread. They're eating together. He breaks the bread. And, and the Spirit opens their eyes, and they see this, this is Jesus. He's alive. Now, is this the Lord's Supper, or is this just a normal meal? First, let's stay on the normal meal part. Even in the normal meal aspect, they're eating a meal together. Uh, even this is, is, a, is an ordinary way that Christ has worked throughout the Gospels. Luke records at least 10 meals that we see just in his Gospel. Uh, but he gives testimony to the fact that people call Jesus a glutton and a drunkard because he's constantly sitting down, eating and drinking with people, sharing hospitality, having some of those same conversations that we've been talking about, drawing out faith, calling out sin, certainly. And so even here, he sits down with his disciples and we know this intrinsically in cultures, even non-Christian cultures know there's something about sitting down for a meal. Our kids are finally old enough that, uh, not every time, but sometimes they'll go off and play after, we've, after they've eaten their one half bite of dinner that Amy spent four hours making. Um, and then they'll go play, and our guests that are over were able to sit at the table and, and talk and chat, and the kids come up every once in a while, and sort of a different world uh, we didn't know existed. And, and it opens up those conversations as, as you're kind of sitting there with an appropriately full belly and, and having wonderful conversation. Luke will pick this up in Acts chapter 2 when he says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the word, to the fellowship, with a the in front of it, like the koinonia, the, the relationships we have with one another, and the breaking of bread and the prayers. And it says they broke bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. And so I think this has to do with a normal meal and the Lord's Supper. Uh, first, a normal meal. That Then and now, as we sit around the table together, we can have some of that very same connection we talked about earlier. And so I would encourage you to share meals together, whatever season of life you're in. But... This also does, of course, apply to the Lord's Supper. It says, He was made known to them in the breaking of bread. And I pray that He would be made known to you today. If you're a believer in Jesus, He reveals Himself, He communes with us. The Lord's Supper is, is extraordinary. It's spiritual. It's utterly unique. There's nothing else that we do or that the world attempts to do like it. And yet the Lord's Supper, by Christ's design, is ordinary. It's physical, it's bread, it's wine, it's a cup, it's a table. It's fellow pilgrims walking along the path, Christ beside us, as he rekindles our faith, even through this most ordinary a means of grace. And so I would pray that you would come today and have your faith rekindled. Let me 
let me point to a, a prayer that I use often from uh, the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, these are part of the daily prayers, and this one is sort of meant to be said after an evening meal. So you'll hear evening language, but um, I think it's appropriate uh, here. And so you pray in this prayer, you say, Lord Jesus, stay with us, for evening is at hand and the day is past. Be our companion in the way. Kindle our hearts and awaken hope that we may know you as you are revealed in Scripture and the breaking of bread. Grant this for the sake of your love. Amen. With that in mind, let me pray for us now as we begin to prepare our hearts for this table, the Lord's Supper. God, we thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, that through your word, through your spirit, you rekindle faith, you rekindle hope in the hearts of your people. I do pray for any saints today that are discouraged or have veered off the way, uh, that you would bring them back like a good shepherd uh, brings back uh, any wandering sheep, like a good shepherd that brings back any wounded sheep uh, and brings them to green pastures and living waters. I pray that you would uh, do that for them and for us. I pray now as we uh, prepare our hearts to receive from you, to commune with Christ by faith, uh, that uh, your spirit would be at work uh, making this meal for us effectual, uh, an effectual means of our salvation. I pray this in Jesus' name.